don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 54. And the boys are back in town. And today we are talking about Roma from 2018, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, we've talked about Cuaron before uh, with Children of Men. We've talked about doing Roma a lot. It seems like this has been an episode like six months in the making. And because of the Criterion release, coupled with the fact that we both think this is a great, uh, not just a great film, but just like a great sort of cinematic achievement, uh, we finally got around to it after being uh, having an unplanned month off. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, I think the spirit of Roma has sort of been haunting this podcast since we began. If I'm not mistaken, the first episode or one of the first episodes was Oscar night, and we were sort of rooting for it, mm-hmm. uh, kind of knowing that Quran would be a a big presence in in our conversations. Uh, so yeah, it's it's high time we talked about Roma, which is maybe. Uh, maybe not my favorite Quran, but maybe his like technically uh, best. And I mean, just it's sort of flawless and it's beautiful. It's, 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 it's one that it's so heavy that I, I don't want to watch it over and over and over. You know, it's like such, it, 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 it takes so much of you to really enjoy it and, and give it everything it deserves to where, I want to watch this like once every three or four years. Yeah, and it, it is. It just has that that kind of. I mean, it's not just that it has the air of being perfect. It's that in a lot of ways, it's kind of a perfectly made film. Whether or not you enjoy the the narrative or any of that kind of stuff is is objective, or is subjective. I mean, uh, but when it comes to the execution, it's just kind of flawless in how it's put together. Um, and for, you know, for those Oscars that you were talking about, it didn't win best picture and what is surely going to be one of the like all time Academy fuck ups for people that care about that kind of thing. Uh, it did win best cinematography and best director, which was his second best director Oscar right after uh, gravity gravity. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of, uh, well, not kind of is incredibly impressive to be a director and, and win that multiple times for, and for two movies that are so incredibly different. Yeah. I didn't, uh, didn't in do that as well, which yeah. in the, in a similar sort of way with, uh, with Birdman and the Revenant, which are, you know, two very different films as well. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's, I've been thinking about that because you have the big, the, the three amigos, right. The three big Mexican directors of our sort of contemporary filmscape, which are in Crone and uh, Guillermo del Toro almost forgot him, forgot his name just now. Corey would have been very sad. Um, <laughs> so you, you have those big three and, you know, del Toro has sort of, he's not really other than Pan's Labyrinth hasn't really had the same kind of like Oscar buzz, but he makes, he has a very distinctive style and he's very good at what oh, he does. I mean, the, the shape of water. Oh, pff, I'm an idiot. Was yeah, like, the shape of... It was like the big one that, that one, right? <laughs> yeah, it did. I yeah. kind of forgot. I forgot that movie existed for a second. So well, forget up, I said that. Up, so up, all three of them up, have won. Up until then, he, you know, he made Pan's Labyrinth and everyone knew he had this sort of like, uh, you know, this, this potential, um, but then for, for several years, 
you know, there wasn't anything big, you know, coming out from Del Toro. Uh, what's it, what's the one? Crimson Peak yeah, no, uh, had some hype, rim. but then it didn't it didn't really pan out. And uh, but then The Shape of Water kind of elevated him yeah. to to where he is. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you caught me slipping there because I, I really I really enjoy the The Shape of Water. I know it's kind of now people are trying to sort of retroactively say that that movie is silly or whatever. And they call it the fish fucking movie. I think we've talked about this before, Yeah, uh, but it is an incredibly effective kind of homage to older Hollywood cinema, cinema, but also a, a pretty Cinnabon Cinnabon older, older <laughs> Hollywood Cinnabons. Um, but it's also a really effective little, you know, love story. I think it has, I've some never scenes. seen it. You you should watch somehow, it somehow. Still, I it uh, is it streaming somewhere? Surely by now. I mean, uh, what's his name? Michael Shannon is very good and deranged yeah. in it. Uh, guy who the other actor who was nominated for best supporting actor whose name I can't remember the older guy. Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. It's a we were just talking about Burn After Reading. Yes, uh, he's in that. Uh, shit. I'm gonna Google it. Uh, we're, you can tell we're on our Rich, game. Rich, is it Richard Jenkins? Yes, Richard. Old Dickie Jenkins. You can tell Man, that we're good. rusty because we're like, we don't know shit about shit so far. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, to go back to my original, original point, thinking about those kind of three directors and how Del Toro has his sort of style that kind of threads through all of his work, even from like Hellboy to The Shape of Water and that kind of stuff. Um, but then when it comes to Tenuritu and, and Crone, they, they seem to be more, I don't know, sort of diverse in the kind of work that they produce. But for me, it kind of seems like it almost harkens back to those older Hollywood Cinnabons I was talking about, uh, <laughs> where you have a director who is making a lot of different kinds of pictures, but they're all meant to be these big sort of productions, right? Um, so you have Crone making children of men and gravity and also Roma, which is this very different, incredibly touching in a different sort of way film. And, you know, in your injury to making Birdman and uh, the revenant, which are very different stories. Um, so uh, I just find that incredibly interesting that they've done that and they've done it so well and in such an entertaining way, but they've also found success with it and been rewarded for it, which is the unexpected part to me. And you also have uh, Quaron, if I'm not mistaken, he directed a children's movie in the 90s called The Little Princess or A Little Princess, uh, just to add another sort of layer of versatility. But it's but you're right. It, it does sort of harken back to an older style there, where directors have a sort of um, versatility just to th- to think in like the 70s and 80s you have somebody as popular as uh Spielberg you know who makes sort of adventure movies but but can also do like a Schindler's List or uh uh Saving Private Ryan or like a kids you know movie like Hook at the same time and even before that to go back even even further you have like uh, I think the guy, I think it's uh, Robert Wise, who made The Sound of Music, and he made that uh, sci-fi film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have, it, it's weird, 
how now we sort of think about, you know, you think of like auteur theory and how, you know, director, a lot of directors kind of remake the same film over and over in a way. Um, I, I'm thinking, think of like Wes Anderson. Um, and, and that's not a, that's not a criticism really, uh, because I really like kind of the one vision he has, like everything's sort of a, a chip off of a, off of a central block, you know? Uh, but it's, uh, you know, there's a, a similar feeling to a lot of his movies and, you know, there's, there's a similar feeling in some of Koran's movies or in your but, uh, but they're stylistically so, so varied. Yeah. And, and not to say that like, if you have some sort of distinctive style that it's easier because I, I saw something, I think it was either like a tweet somebody had or somebody had written an article from somewhere. I don't remember, but it was saying about Wes Anderson that, you know, Wes Anderson gets a lot of flack and people sort of uh, knock him for being so twee and being so dedicated to his style, but it is incredibly difficult to have a distinctive style that you are known for that no one else can really copy without someone saying, Hey, you're doing Wes Anderson. Yeah. It's like, it's like people being mad at Raymond Carver for writing Raymond Carver stories. You know, yeah, it's like, like being he, mad he at contri- ACDC. contributed a voice, like a new thing to, you know, to a, to an art form. Um, yeah, I, I have no, no problems with it. Yeah. It's like, uh, like saying ACDC, you, you, whether or not you like them, they are sort of like the rock band and they perfected what they did and have done it well for like 50 years now. Not, not as quite a literary example, but I think, I think, uh, Wendell Berry says something, or I think, I think he's, I've heard him say his wife told him that his strength or his success has been in his willingness to repeat himself. <laughs> um, that is which, funny. <laughs> which, you know, you normally think of that as a, a, uh, a defect, uh, but he's sort of saying, no, like if this is what I believe in and, uh, you know, this is the, the core of my message, then everything should kind of be a, just an iteration of a central theme. Yeah. And people are, that's, that's a good quote because people are kind of terrified to repeat themselves, right? Some people so much so that they have a kind of truncated career because they're trying so hard to be, you know, brand new and original. Uh, whereas if you're, it, not maybe directly repeating yourself, but doing it in a way where you're growing that image as opposed to just, you know, reproducing the same part of it over and over again. I think that can be really good if done well. Yeah. It's almost like the, the opposite uh, trap you can fall into. Like you think of being like a, a one trick pony. The opposite of that is what we're talking about where you're so scared of being a one trick pony that you'll just do anything that's not similar to what you've done before. And you end up doing something inauthentic that, that is driven by some sort of demographic concern the same way a one trick pony is driven by uh, a demographic concern. Yeah. 
Yeah. Figured it out. Nailed it. Uh, so, Roma is a good movie, I think. Uh, and I, I, I'm glad you mentioned, because uh, I, I had never seen it like around on my queue or whatever, but the companion documentary that Netflix released. Yeah. It was really kind of illuminating. Um, and also kind of, it made me appreciate Crone a little bit more as, as an artist because he is thinking about all these things. You know, it, it could, I imagine it's easy to do something really cool in a film on accident, but he seems like everything is so meticulously planned. Um, you know, recreating the whole street and all these sorts of things and having a kind of underlying philosophy behind it of this, this cinema of memory going on. And we, yeah. And we've talked about this before, but I love it when directors or artists of any kind don't dodge questions about like thematics and, and, and metaphors, um, because they're so consciously developed and it's to me, it's it's just so dishonest when a director's like, I don't know, what do you think? And in that documentary, Quoran's talking about the opening shot, and he's like, you know, the tile floor, and you see the uh, soapy water sort of washing over it. And he's like, my, my first instinct is that uh, the the tile represents a sort of grid, kind of quantified, mechanistic understanding, and and the water is kind of this fluid kind of antidote to it. And, and I only say that because I'd seen the movie before. And so I sort of knew the themes, but he, uh, in that documentary, he says the, the, the ground is reality. You know, groundedness is uh, the, the, the tile you see represents reality. And the water is, you know, you have to remember is dirty water. You know, it's, it's cleaning. Uh, Cleo is cleaning. And so he says, this is this is all the stuff that sort of culture imposes on reality and then later you see like the dog shit you know and that's <laughs> like and 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 the dog is is kind of this metaphor for for you see connections between the dog and the men in the movie uh, and so just making messes on reality that the women have to clean up or are expected to clean up uh, so just just in that opening shot, you've got all this stuff going on. But it's nice in that documentary to hear him say, like, here's what I was thinking, uh, instead of being abstract about it and, and and dodging the question. Yeah. And everything is so kind of tightly constructed in the movie, but not in a way that makes it feel overbearing. But it, it's incredibly immersive, not just because they worked so hard to maintain that time period and they you know rebuilt the street in downtown mexico city and like used the house across the street from the house that he grew up in and all that sort of stuff but it just has that the, the way it's constructed where you're kind of cleo is the the main character but it's not really tightly focused on her you're kind of floating around beside her as opposed to being like her, you know sharing a viewpoint with her necessarily so you're supposed to see her in the context of her environment and like political circumstances. Yeah. And in that way it is, it kind of looks like a memory would look 
uh, and I think that's why that, you know, him, him trying to direct it from memory, memory, but also not say that this is a memory that I am transcribing into a film, but here is a memory that I'm trying to show you as a memory. Um, and I think that's incredibly, incredibly cool. <laughs> and it's also for me was really one of the more fascinating parts of the, the whole film. Well, and, and you mentioned like the, the, sort of big undertaking of rebuilding this city to look exactly as it did. There's a way that that can overshadow the film and, and it becomes a sort of stunt. It makes me think of, of boyhood and how a lot of people dismiss that movie because it's just, Oh, here's this sort of time, uh, stunt movie. Uh, but there's actually, uh, I would argue in boyhood, the stunt is, is in service of, you know, the, the themes of the film, the same way the stunt of, of recreating this neighborhood and the city in Roma is so that Quran can do what he wants to do and, and tell the story he wants to tell, not just to be, you know, some sort of, uh, cool special feature that people know about, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, tied up in the meaning of the movie as opposed to just some cool thing. Um, so I don't, I don't, uh, even if it didn't mean anything, it would be cool. But Quran is, uh, I think way more, uh, way too thoughtful a person, uh, than to just like spend a bunch of time on a, on a little, on a project like that. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I don't know, are there any particular parts that you, that you wanted to talk about or touch on? Uh, what, something that I, I, I recurs throughout the movie is the, the, the garage. We start in the garage and the fact that the husband in the family drives a, an American car that is too big for the garage in Mexico. Uh, so we see he's, you know, he's driving this imported car and his way of life is kind of too large, too supersized, you know, for, uh, for the way of life that, uh, that the city is built for. Uh, and, and obviously you can go a lot of different directions with that. Yeah. Or, or at least, you know, too big for his family's home. Right. And, and seeing them, uh, shoot that shot in the documentary was fascinating because they have all the cameras on all the like angles of the car and they have to shoot it from like all these, di- it was just, I bet that was a nightmare to try to get all that on film, but it's a really great and comical scene, even though it's, mm-hmm. it's so domestically sad because you have the the family just like waiting for the father and they're like smiling like oh daddy's home and then he takes 20 minutes parking his enormous car um but yeah that just that idea in you know that's that's sort of the father's whole deal his his whole role in the film is sort of to be or to become the absent father um so you have that that great scene of like oh this guy is like clearly uncomfortable feels as if he doesn't have enough room to move within this family structure, which is 
I guess not a common or not an uncommon complaint, but doesn't make it any less shitty. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was interesting to hear Goron talk about that scene where the father is leaving in the, in the documentary, and you know he sort of doesn't realize why he's in such a shitty mood while he's filming this. Okay. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, I'm filming like this disastrous scene from my childhood. Maybe that's why I'm not feeling great about it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's, uh, it's interesting how you, like he says in the documentary, he's, he's trying to be as objective as he can about it. He's trying to like, not just condemn, but like understand why would a man do this? what uh what's you know what's going on in his mind and his life that that leads to this and you can't you can't be totally objective but you can be more understanding and less understanding yeah it's like a difference between like like you're saying understanding why he left and and forgiving him for doing so so like i, I get it but that doesn't make it okay yeah there's there's a lot i think that 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 character can open up a big conversation about like you know if you if you obviously this a major theme of this movie is patriarchy uh, to put it in a very general way um but it's it's almost like he is this you know he is this god in his family and obviously uh he's a shithead for leaving but it's it's like this the social structure which produces this this dynamic in the family is is ensuring that the father will be a letdown and and will feel constrained you know he comes home and everyone's just like it's like jesus christ has just showed up uh it it's it reminds me of parasite you know when the dad the father comes home and and the wife sort of runs over like a dog um so it's, I think it's, it, you know, it's more complex than just like, oh, this particular guy is an asshole, which he is, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's emblematic of, of the larger social structure that, that produces this dynamic. Yeah. And, and don't they refer to him as the doctor? Am I yes. That? Yeah. Yes. Which is just another, he's not you know, whatever he's not a person. He's a, he's, he's a, a successful social status. Yes. Um, that he is more than willing to capitalize on, uh, with the money and, you know, going out and all this sort of stuff, but, uh, also feels constrained by at the same time, sort of that, that double bind of, of living in that kind of, you know, societal framework that you're talking about. Um, so yeah, but I don't know it, that kind of. I think that might be kind of the foundation for that. Uh, the sympathy that 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 view that Crone's trying to take of 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 understanding as opposed to just outright condemning completely, um, which is it had to have been I would imagine difficult to do that to to look at something so traumatic from your childhood and say, well, let me take a step back and see what was really going on or try to understand it from a different angle or at least present it from this angle, you know, whether or not he really feels that way is, uh, you know, not for, not for us to know, I guess. 
Yeah. I don't, uh, obviously I don't pretend to be any sort of like, you know, feminist scholar, um, or, or, or to know sort of the, you know, the hippest, uh, developments in, in feminist theory, but I, I would be very interested to talk with someone who is, uh, and, and get their take on Roma. It, because it seems to me one of a very few films that, you know, we talk about having the right bad guys. Uh, one of the very few films that has the right bad guy in terms of the, in terms of the feminist movement, because it goes back far enough to where, again, it's not, it's not depicting the individual as heroic by any means. Um, he's a, the, the father is a, not a well-liked character. You know, he's an asshole, but it's also the movie has the courage to go back further and, 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 uh, and like I said, show a sort of patriarchal structure that is creating these conditions. And, and it seems to me a deeply feminist film. Uh, and, and for other reasons that we can, we can talk about later, but I would, I would love to like, you know, get, get a, someone who's, uh, you know, spends their time only thinking and reading feminist, uh, scholarship to, to weigh in on this to, you know, maybe I'm way off, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Can, <laughs> can, a can a man make, uh, the most feminist film? I don't know. <laughs> that, yeah, probably not question. um i mean at the very at the very least it's not even if it's not outwardly feminist it does it is condemning patriarchy uh kind of broadly speaking through the father and also through Fermin, who's the biggest asshole in the movie yeah yeah and also sort of through the the mexican government in a lot of ways um yeah so so yeah i think it's at the very least it is doing that and it does have the the, the right bad guy which is this patriarchal spirit within a society that would you know allow such things to happen or allow people to be put in such situations yeah and you see uh to go back to what we were saying about the the opening shot the the water the sort of dirty water as representing the the cultural impositions the shit people put onto reality uh, the the ending is cleo literally pulling this family out of the water and back onto dry land uh, and so you see uh you know this uh the woman character as a necessary presence like like life or death necessary presence um in these kids and, and the and the mother's life um because yeah. the mother is sort of in the grip in the grip of the in that underlying structure we're talking about like she is distraught and and sort of hangs on the husband's every move her happiness is dependent on his happiness up until, you know, three quarters of the way through the movie. Yeah. And it, important about that, that kind of a climactic beach scene is that Cleo doesn't know how to swim. 
so that you know sort of indicative of for one her her dedication to the children right but also this idea that you get from all this this kind of water imagery and water you know moving through the this sort of uh, kind of going back to your initial kind of uh, metaphor not not corones what you're talking about this grid kind of grid mm. of reason and then the water flowing over it um of, of cleo kind of like moving through the the events within this world moving through the the waves of this world in a way that where even though she can't swim she's able to you know survive right 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 yeah i remember thinking that watching it like she has you know she's this indigenous uh woman in in the lower class you know in the working class she has no standing and i think the fact that she can't swim is is the metaphor there you know is the metaphor for her having no standing or no um sort of explicit uh agency in this in this culture um and yet she still like you say somehow navigates it and in a way that in in a very important way saves these kids and this family's life yeah because it's it's something that that has to be done right there's no there's no way around it you have to sort of go through it as opposed to over it um, and that's something I, I enjoy about this, this movie. It's because it's a, you know, it's sort of, it does illustrate some of these class distinctions where you have this rich family and then you have Cleo, who's this, you know, indigenous servant and you get the, the stratification kind of shown to you in the, in very, uh, kind of obvious ways. Um, but at the same time you, you get both of those, both people from both of those strata of society dealing with the same currents of history kind of and i'm going to keep using these water metaphors these same uh, currents of history <laughs> that, that keep coming in uh, and you see how it, 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 i don't know it's kind of i don't know if inspiring is the right word but given everything that's going on right now with covid and, and everything else showing you that sort of no matter what happens in in within the flow of history, people keep living and keep surviving and keep finding ways to, to, to march on and that sort of stuff. Um, and so I, I don't know in, in that way, I think it, it it's useful as this, this kind of text that shows that, yeah, things get real shitty, but people still have to get up in the morning and do the laundry and that sort of stuff. Right. And everything, it seems like the, the, what makes it okay, and, and I think this is true in uh, in Roma as well as E2 Maman Tambien, it, it, it's like the only thing that makes it okay is, is characters finally being willing to embrace uh, a way of life that is maybe foreign to them or uncomfortable for them. And, and really it's, it's this sort of embrace of the, of the feminine type thing. Uh, wherein you see in in e two mama tambien you, you know these these friends these characters are brought together by this woman um, and there's sort of this sort of crass kind of lusty story, which is actually this facade for this sort of deep love between these two friends um, and it, it and it's only through you know their their relationship with this woman, this sort of 
feminine being that they, you know, in the end get together, but then immediately part because they lack the courage to, to go through with it. Uh, but then in Roma, it's a similar sort of thing. Like the family is so much happier, you know, at the end and, and towards the end when they start, uh, when Cleo becomes a, a real presence as opposed to just like the help. One of, one of the most heartbreaking scenes to me is in Roma is in the beginning when the family is watching TV mm-hmm. and Cleo just sort of naturally, uh, you know, has her eyes glued to the screen and just is smiling and naturally just sort of sits down and gets caught up in whatever they're watching. And the mother says, Cleo, will you, you know, get the doctor his tea? And it's like, just let her sit there for 10 minutes and watch the damn show. But you see that Cleo is not a real person to them at the beginning. She is, she is just this sort of unconscious kind of, uh, help. Yeah. And that, that even comes up again later when, when they go, uh, on their, their mini vacation after the father leaves and, the mother's like, oh, you know, Cleo's on vacation too, so don't ask her to do anything. But then they get there, and of course, she has to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that and just that, like, I, I agree that that is a pretty heartbreaking scene <laughs> where you're like, oh, she was she was part of the family for two seconds, and then right. <laughs> snapped back to reality. And, and you get you get this sort of feeling of maybe it's a on some level an intentional thing like the the mother is so protective and jealous that as soon as this you know this woman starts to feel comfortable in this family she has to remind her her place you know yeah which might be the case that, that wouldn't be that you know that's not an uncommon kind of trope yeah, especially, and it, it it would come from the mother's insecurity because she kind of knows the score with her husband. You know, she knows he's uh, stepping out, honky tonking around. <laughs> no, yeah, and and so I don't know. I I'm trying to think of what part I would like to talk about next. I think um, just talking about the whole saga with with cleo and and fermine and and the baby and everything uh because that's sort of a major i don't know i don't want to call it a subplot but it does seem like it's kind of made the subplot to the the family disintegration that we have even though Mm -hmm. for for cleo it's it's a much bigger deal yeah yeah it just it maybe it feels sort of like a subplot because it kind of sneaks up on you, uh, you know, as a viewer, um, you're not really expecting that. Um, yeah, and- here's some here's something before I forget. I wanted to mention. I thought it was very uh, uh, strange and worth noting that when we first meet Furman, he, you know, they're in a restaurant and. They're leaving, and he uh, takes the remnants, what's left of Cleo's Coke. She's drinking a Coke in a bottle, and then they leave, and he just sort of 
gulps it down after she leaves. And I thought that was so strange, but it's, it's like, he's trying to get, you see, he's trying to have something for free. He's kind of dis in that one act. We see that he's dishonest and maybe a little greedy and in a way sort of taking advantage of Cleo. <laughs> like in that one act, he's trying to get what he wants, not have to pay for it and, and take something from Cleo. Um, anyway, I thought that was a, a, re- a remarkably small moment that, you know, says something larger about the character. Yeah. And that he's, he, he sort of later on, he tell tells her that, you know, you're just a fucking servant. You know, he doesn't even call her that he's just fucking servant and like walks as he's walking away after he does. Yeah. As big, he's, as he's literally like following orders. Yeah. His big know. dramatic, like karate kick that he does. But yeah, that's, that was the point I was <laughs> going to get to is that he, he is the pawn here, right? The, of this, you know, government shadow army that they're putting together. These disaffected kind of uninformed young men who, you know, they say, we'll train you to be big and tough and strong and how to do karate and all that. And then you can defend the nation. And it's very important and all that. And he has been completely indoctrinated into this. Um, and every time he mentions it or does one of his little demonstrations he just looks like an utter fucking idiot like when he's he's naked and he's like doing all of his stuff as his junk's bouncing around yeah yeah um so like i said the first time you see Furman, he's he's stealing the coke the last time you see Furman, he is running to jump on to the truck with the other soldiers like it's just a perfectly sort of poetic picture of Furman. he's like desperately trying to be included in this uh, in this sort of probably purpose providing scheme you know he's trying to live the purpose driven life um, and, and, it's, and he has to he has to have this big sort of institution telling him you know providing that meaning for him yeah and it's kind of that sort of implies that that Cleo's life is not as purposeful that what she's doing is not as important or as fulfilling, even though, you know, we see by the end, she's kind of become a part of the family. Even she though is she's... literally fucking vital to the family. Yes, Like she, the family disintegrates without her. Yeah. And, and, you know, you learn from the, the documentary and from other stuff about the film that Crone makes this based or well, based on, and also in tribute to his, nanny i guess you would call her um mm. oh what's her name the lebo yeah and it, i can't would, remember but he's talking about how she's act like uh, the real woman is in uh itumama tambien yeah. she plays the maid at uh i guess to Tenoch, i think it's the guy's name at his house yeah. um so yeah yeah her, her name's uh, lebo because at the end when you have that you know the beautiful shot of Cleo going up the stairs and the airplane going over. It says Paralibo. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So another way that he's he's kind of using that that memory cinema technique, um, and a big reason why he's presenting someone from. You hear this phrase a lot of like authors or directors or whatever that show you 
show you the people that go unseen usually or show you the people that society doesn't like to look at or doesn't look at, doesn't spend their time thinking about. Um, so that personal element goes a long way toward explaining the, the deep kind of empathy and, and caring that goes into showing Cleo as a character and, and showing how she develops this connection with the family. And that's why you feel so bad when, you know, the mother asks her to go get the tea and all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, because you, you know, how you see her doing her work, right? Like that, that's so much of the film. And this this is kind of a a Crowan thing, these long shots, but not just like the really cool long shots, like the, the scene on the beach or the scene where they're running down the street, but just the, at the beginning where it's that really long shot of the, her cleaning the floors and the, the scene at the very end when she's, she has the laundry and she's climbing up all the steps to the roof. Uh, just lingering on those moments that you usually would think would be the stuff you would skip over instead trying to show you how how important, how vital those are uh, to the lives of the characters within within this narrative. And and how her willingness uh, to to do those sort of boring, mundane things over and over again, you know, how much uh, it, it seems to me Quran is acknowledging how much of his uh, development and his ability to, you know, escape into his imagination and be, you know, live this sort of leisure life that allows someone to, you know, become a, a filmmaker uh, is dependent on someone doing those tasks over and over and over again. Because you kind of see the little kid, the little boy, who who I think we can assume is a kind of stand-in for Quran you know, he's always playing and he's always got these wild stories he's making up and he's talking about how he was a pilot in his past life and all these things. Um, and he, he's telling her this while she's like doing laundry and, and, and just the, the menial tasks. And you see his leisure is, is a direct result of her labor. Yeah. And just the, just to talk about a scene, I really like the the scene and it illustrates what you're talking about when they're on the roof and they pretend yeah. to be dead. Mm-hmm. That's a, the great scene where Cleo's like, I kind of like being dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, that little boy, I forget which one that is. Pet, uh, I don't know if he's, I'm looking at a list of the cast, but it doesn't have their, it has their name and not like their role in the family. So I don't know which one that's supposed to be. I thought I was kind of hoping I would look and his name was just Alfonso, but it's not. <laughs> um, and the, the child actors are really great in this, the movie as well. And a big part of that, I think goes to his filming style that they talked about in the documentary where he didn't tell them, or he only gave them their lines for the scene. And then they had to sort of, do them as if they were reacting to things because they were, you know, reacting to the other characters lines for the first time. Mm, yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a good way to do it. And it, yeah. it, you see in that documentary, he has such a, such a natural sort of way of, you know, he doesn't seem to condescend in any way to the, to the younger actors. He's just like talking to them as, as equals, um, which is, which is nice. It seems like that would be a, a difficult thing to do. And he, you know, he's like listening to their suggestions and, um, yeah. yeah. And the one, the one, uh, part of it where the, the little girl like catches a, a continuity error or something. <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah. like, Oh, I'll go fix that. 
And it's just because she's, you know, a curious little kid. And she's like, wait a minute, I thought you said this. And he's like, you're right, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, I guess we should talk about the the scene where the sort of riot breaks out when they are, when when Cleo and her, the, the grandmother are shopping for a crib. It's maybe... It's, I mean, it's sort of an extended scene because this is when she goes into labor. Um, but maybe the most memorable for me sequence of the movie. Yeah. The end. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And that, that's another example of those great long shots that, that Crone has kind of mastered at this point. You know, we talked a lot about the, that, that, famous tracking shot at the end of children of men in in Roma, you have three or four kind of shots like that, that maybe don't last as long, but are just, well, there's effective. a few, there's a few shout outs, I, I think in Roma to his other movies. And, and I think we're maybe supposed to see these shout outs as uh, sort of fundamental inspirations for his later work. So the, the most obvious one is, uh, I believe they're watch- they go to the theater and they're watching a movie called Marooned and it looks like a sort of prototype for gravity. Yeah. The, uh, but yeah. the, but the sequence we're talking about where Cleo goes into labor, it, it's to me seems directly correlated to children of men of this one, this pregnant woman making her way through this just warscape um, of a city, you know, trying to deliver this baby uh, which is, I mean, essentially what children of men is. Um, but yeah, you see these little, little sequences that, uh, I think are meant to suggest his later movies. Yeah. I, I, I'd caught the gravity one, but I hadn't really put the, put two and two together for the other one. Yeah. Um, but that, that scene in the, the furniture store where you have the great, you get the, the view of the fighting outside, but you kind of get it through this, secondary character the guy that runs up to the window and the camera kind of goes with him and then we see from above what's going on in the street almost as if we were there in the store and kind of walked over to look out the window Mm -hmm. Um, and that's you know you get Furman coming in and shooting the guy which is like in case you didn't dislike him already (laughs) kind of the final nail in the coffin Um, yeah you, you you see that he is completely like his his abandoning Cleo is like maybe a, maybe a good thing yeah. um, because he's clearly caught up in this literally murderous ideology, whatever it may be. Um, so his sticking around and, and maybe that's sort of what we were touching on earlier with talking about the father and, and, and Quaron trying to be objective about him leaving or trying to understand why he would, it, it, it seems it seems like the movie suggests that this underlying structure we're talking about produces men that it's better if they're not around. You know what I'm saying? It's not it's not like you you can't say men are assholes and it's a tragedy that they're not around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like how, how can how, you know that doesn't logically square? Um, you have to you have to have a social system. Uh, and a sort of ethic that is producing people and, and partners 
that are good, uh, you know, that are positive influences and presences in families, not just begrudging, uh, begrudging sort of, uh, presences or, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, the way the father is or Furman would have been had he, you know, been guilted into staying, staying around. Yeah. Yeah. So you get that kind of underlying, uh, kind of rising matriarchy coming through, or at least presenting a sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, a more sort of like, it, well, this is kind of stereotypical to put together with a talking about matriarchy, but a kind of a nurturing nature, um, a kind of idea that, that you would sort of organically exist within the family structure as opposed to being very tightly typecast into a specific role within it. Right. And, and exist equally like your, your presence there is not more important than the mother or the children or, or, you know, each individual child, like that's, that I think is the ideal and like we we said you see at the beginning that that is not the structure at all even when the father is part of the family he's this fucking you know god figure that everyone kind of worships um and and it's it's the same way you see these soldiers like worshiping this kind of uh, you know whatever ideology it is that they're subscribing to um you have this sort of big leader figure that everyone's supposed to sort of bow down to and and you hear coron at some point in the documentary talk about how he wants to make a movie about a family a city and a country and you see all the ways in which they are you know all those different units of collectivity are impacted by the same disease and you know like i said patriarchy is kind of a reductive near general term but i think that that is sort of the disease that each uh kind of concentric ring of collectivity is suffering from yeah and you get you know cleo at the the middle of that sort of inter- existing at the intersection of those three things and you know all the characters do but since she's sort of our our sort of guide through those things we we kind of get it from her point of view and it's and that's what makes it kind of interesting when she's watching her and the grandmother are watching this this riot or this you know this massacre of these demonstrators uh happen um it's it sort of it, it affects cleo directly because then they can't get to the hospital in a timely fashion and all that sort of stuff but in the end, she can just kind of go back to the family and keep working. And even though there's this this great civil unrest, she's just going to sort of keep her head down and keep keep working. And that you know, not saying that that's a bad thing. I think that's how most people get through a day to day life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but showing how those things intersect to make people's lives kind of even more complicated than they just are in a domestic sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you see that even Cleo's simple domestic life is 
pretty rigorous. Like yeah. she doesn't get to sit down. And then <laughs> that's a great scene when, when you see her sort of closing up the house for the day and then she goes to her little apartment and her and her friend start exercising <laughs> because they have, because they have to stay thin, you know, to, to be attractive and, and get a husband after they've just worked all day long. It's, it's very sad. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's the way it's shot's a little funny because they're, they're laughing, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it's, it's really kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. And the, something that, that kind of goes, well, it doesn't go missing, but we don't notice quite as much, probably depending on our, our familiarity with these things, but they, they speak in, in a indigenous language, right? Mm-hmm. So they speak in, I think it's mixed tech when they talk to each other. Cause I was reading that the, the actress, um, who's, uh, Yelitsa didn't speak it. Like even though one of her parents is, is mixed tech, but she didn't speak the language and had to learn it or at least learn her lines for the film, which I thought was, was interesting. Um, but showing that kind of, uh, separation between within Mexican society, between, you know, people of Spanish ancestry and people of indigenous ancestry and how language is, is one of those markers, uh, between, them. yeah. um, that, that kind of can go missing on an American audience, I think. Right, right, right. And uh, just while I'm thinking about it, like I mentioned to you before, Matt, uh, just a few days ago on May 23rd, the New York Times published a piece called In Mexico, Roma Lit a Fire for Workers' Rights. And this is a, a short article uh, written by the actress who played Cleo, uh, Yelitsa Aparicio, I probably fuck that up in some meaningful way. Um, but it's just about this sort of awakening. She says she has, uh, by being in the movie and, and seeing the movie and being involved in the recreation of this, of this, uh, uh, violence, uh, a sort of awakening she has about class struggle. And she's since uh, I was reading about her, she's since become this sort of, uh, sort of humanitarian worker and she's working to sort of highlight these issues of class struggle for indigenous women specifically. But if you get a chance, check out in Mexico, Roma lit a fire for workers. Yeah. Do that in the New York times. Yeah. And just to repeat what I said earlier, if she ends up being a humanitarian instead of an actress, that's completely fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, and that and yeah, although, no, definitely better. <laughs> yeah, although her her performance was, was you know fantastic, she was nominated for the Oscar. Uh, she was you know the first I think indigenous actress to be nominated. Um, how how fascinating was the scene in the documentary where they're showing them filming the scene in the hospital? Yeah, I was uh, going to bring that up eventually. And she fucking knocks it out of the park. That was that was an amazing thing to witness how just how organically that happens. Like he, they're talking about how Quran doesn't tell her to cry, you know? Mm-hmm. He doesn't tell her what to do and she just does it and she's, you know, she's laughing saying like I had no idea that that was going to happen, you know, that she she was going to be like taken over. Yeah, and about, you he, know, by the the moment. Yeah, he he brought. You know, it was he it was in, amazing to watch. He he brought in uh, actual doctors, 
to to play mm-hmm. the doctors and was asking them like what what would happen like okay this is what happens in the scene what would you do and they oh i would i would go over and say this so he's like okay well then do that like make it right. as sort of uh natural as you can and wasn't the thing that he like she thought there was going to be an actual baby don't they mention that in the oh, i don't remember i don't i don't remember and then so when they hand her the you know the the fake baby the the film baby she it'd be funny if she like gets handed the baby and she was like what the fuck but uh, <laughs> but she you know was expecting this one thing and and that i think might have helped her with having this kind of spot-on emotional response to to what was happening yeah uh, but that scene is just so like and again the the whole film i think is perfectly constructed but that scene is just like because it is so kind of naturalistic and kind of true to life for for what that would have been like at that time when it happens is just like a sledgehammer yeah and it's it's so just utterly heartbreaking at the end when you know she's she's rescued the the kids from the water and they're on the beach and she sort of breaks down and sort of confesses that she didn't want the baby and you can tell you don't really know until that moment that that she's been carrying around this enormous burden of guilt and and to me what's so sad is is yes that she feels that but that it's such an illogical place for that to come out that she does not have anyone she can tell that too to where when it finally just bubbles over and and explodes out of her in this moment of crisis it doesn't really make any sense and that but it just it just has to come out um i think it just adds a layer of sadness to it that it's that she doesn't have there's no one she could have said that to uh you know there's no arena for this uh indigenous woman in the in the working class or or lower class um yeah and it kind of gets back to your point of of deal with the the shit she's dealing with yeah and it gets back to your, your point about roma being a kind of feminist film because it's not the it's it's incredibly sad that she loses her child but then the sadder part ends up being that she never wanted the child in the first place um and you know it can bring up all sorts of questions of being you know pro-choice pro-life for that whole debate i've been watching uh the mrs america um mini series and it's talking a lot about the the feminist movement in the 70s so i have that kind of debate in my head right now um but just that this idea that you would have and like you're saying she has no one to tell but the the very fact that she would feel that way in the first place is sort of the source of her guilt it's not necessarily like when she tells the family that's one thing but just to be carrying that around um and to have to feel so guilty for it when in reality it's like that's fine like she didn't <laughs> she didn't want to raise Fervin's baby by herself um and that's right you know, that's yeah okay. what crime is that yeah but you know it's such a heavy burden that you know she just falls apart yeah um 
something just another like i keep talking about like the technical parts of the, the film but I, th- I didn't know this uh until i started like poking around but uh crone did his own cinematography oh yeah i read that and also was like editing for the film so if you want to talk about like being an auteur like that's <laughs> peak auteur right he's doing it all especially he normally if i'm not mistaken works with the 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 great cinematographer uh lubezki or lubezki or something like that the guy who shoots all the most beautiful movies in the world yeah he did gravity Uh, and so so to forego that uh and and do it himself is a a move of a con yeah and uh, just reading like because uh, I have the Wikipedia page open as we're talking, did you see uh, Zizek's piece about or what he said about Roma? No, I don't think so. Uh, so just this, where did it go? Um, said that says Slavoj Zizek argued that people were appreciating the film for the wrong reasons, claiming that people were appreciating Cleo's grace too much, without seeing the way that she needs to break free from the moral constraints placed upon her. Which I, you know, I think we we pretty much are in agreement with that. Like, it, we're not saying like, "Ooh, how how graceful of her to, you know, keep her head down and and keep working, right?" Uh, but mm-hmm. in, instead, it's she's sort of struggling against this, you know, societal structure in which she exists, and she's kind of doing her best within it. Um, and that's that's you know admirable but we're not going to celebrate the fact that that system exists right right um yeah and and there's a way to sort of abstract this to a point where where it becomes meaningless to talk about an individual it's like if you want to ground this in the real world this that is the problem you can be as woke as you want to be about issues of class struggle but you have to uh, you have to make ends meet, as they say. Uh, and so, you know, how, how much can you expect or how much should you expect of someone? If we see, we see the expectations for her job early in the movie. Like it is sun up to sundown without a break. So, uh, I, I'm not sure how much you can fault someone for not, uh, you know, being able to escape this this sort of social system when they can't survive with, it. you know, they're they're just trying to meet their basic. She's just trying to make meet her basic needs. Revolution is is not on her mind. Yeah, and that's the case I think with most people in that situation. Yes. So I, I want to. To, to add on to this conversation, I want to read you the final paragraph of this Zizek piece. It's very short. Um, but he says there's, and this is his, his reading of the ending of the film, which I think is, is, is worth bringing up. Okay, so uh, there is a further hint of emancipation to come in the very final moments of the film when Cleo says to Adela, Adela is uh, the, other, the other servant that she's friends with, uh, I have much to tell you. Maybe this means that Cleo is finally getting ready to step out of the trap of her goodness becoming aware that her selfless dedication to her family is the very form of her servitude. In other words, Cleo's total withdrawal from political concerns, her dedication to selfless service, is the very form of her ideological identity. It is how she lives ideology. 
maybe explaining her predicament to Adela as the beginning of Cleo's class consciousness, the first step that will lead her to join the protesters on the street. A new figure of Cleo will arise in this way, a much more cold and ruthless uh, figure of Cleo delivered from ideological chains. But maybe it will not. It is very difficult to get rid of the chains in which we not only feel good, but feel that we are doing something good. As T.S. Eliot put it in his Murder in the Cathedral, the greatest sin is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Hmm. That's that's an interesting perspective. That is Zizek from The Spectator, January of 2019. And Zizek famously loves Quirrell. Yeah. I think his favorite, he always says his favorite movie is Children of Men. Yes. Uh, so, so yeah, it's an interesting, interesting uh, take on it. I, I don't know if I necessarily buy into the whole her telling her story will be a turn to class consciousness, but I do think that. No, I, I don't really see any, any textual evidence for that. Yeah. But, but the idea that maybe she's coming around to the fact that, you know, maybe she was you know doing her work for for the wrong reason maybe but at the same time she you get this feeling of a, a genuine love for the children you know she saves them from drowning and i don't think she does that out of any sort of uh any sort of obligation of her work hmm. uh are you back yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, she doesn't save them out of any sort of obligation for, for being their nanny or whatever. She does it because she cares for them, doesn't want them to die, to drown in the ocean. Uh, so I think there maybe turns to like she's doing it out of affection for the children and maybe for the mother, um, but also like not forgetting that. But it's, all, that, it's also out of, out of financial necessity. Oh yeah, yeah. And like yeah. not forgetting that even though she may love them and they may love her back, she is categorically not a member of the family in the same kind of way, or at least not an equal member of it by any means. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think, you know, that's uh, films that are pointing out class divides, I think are, kind of in vogue right now um maybe they've always been in vogue but you know you think of parasite and then roma which does it in a far more you know we talked about bong joon ho being very upfront with his messages uh roma's kind of maybe a more nuanced but not not any less effective version of a, of a similar kind of message i'm not sure what's going on yeah, not, i just kept talking through the you future. cut out again we're gonna have we're gonna have to like we're gonna have to like uh, edit this, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure what, you, what, you know, you're picking up and what, what I'm not hearing. Okay. Um, so I, I'll, I'll go back and fix it later. Uh, but it, okay. any, any sort of like final thoughts on, on Roma? A masterpiece for sure. Uh, I definitely want to, want to make sure, uh, we talk just for a, a second about, um, uh, I, the first time I watched this, I watched this with uh, Jensi, and she noticed, and I think this is a very good observation, the the sort of role the bookshelves play, uh, again, in the sort of feminist reading, where when the, when the father leaves, he leaves some of the books 
but he takes the bookshelves. And I think it's a, it's a really good metaphor for like this, like we've been saying, this sort of larger, deeper structure, social structure, um, or, or even better uh, word would be epistemological structure. Um, so the bookshelves are these containers of knowledge, sort of the, the structure of our knowledge, um, how we arrange what we know. Um, and then, and like I said, he leaves, he takes the bookshelves, but leaves some of the books. So the, the question sort of becomes how will these women, uh, rearrange or arrange the books now that the old containers are gone. Um, yeah. So anyway, I think that's a, a sort of brilliant part of the film yeah. and uh, kind of essential to understanding it. Yeah. And, and that he, you know, the father takes the, the outward appearance of being well-read as opposed to the actual substance of it. It's this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is facade. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're the bookshelves. Yep. I almost forgot about this is like that's become such like a staple in my head when I think about Roma I just didn't even think about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh me too. But yeah, and it's a great it's it's a really great subtle detail that says a lot about that character and his relationship to his family. Yeah, and you see you see too that uh the bookshelf is like in the center of the home. It's kind of out of place. Um it's just like it's like the center of this sort of circle uh, off of which the the different rooms of the house are, um, and so yeah, I think that's another clue that we're supposed to pay attention to this uh, and that this is kind of foundational or, or central to to the uh, to the daily life going on in this family. Yeah, I would agree. So yeah, I don't really what? anything else you want to that we have. I don't think so. I think uh, I think that we we could probably sit here and talk for five more hours about it because there's just uh, you know little details here and there. But uh, I think I think I've said my piece. <laughs> said my I, I, just here to speak my piece, and I did. <laughs> Um, what uh, what do you want to do next week? We haven't talked about this yeah, at all. Yeah, I was going to say like we I have no idea what what we're going to do next week. Do you uh do you want to do that Michael Moore thing? Yeah, I don't remember what that's called. Planet of the Humans. Planet of the Humans, baby. Yeah, so um uh, it's been removed from YouTube. We'll find it somewhere. Uh so just a, a quick bit of background on that. Planet of the Humans is the new uh, documentary by, uh, well, it's by Jeff Gibbs, but it's been backed by uh, Michael Moore, and he, he's playing a big role in it. And it's been hit pretty hard by people, actual environmental activists who aren't Michael Moore cashing in on his image as the world's greatest, you know, liberal voice or whatever it is. Um I, I don't know. I really, I've, I've heard, I've heard different takes on it. You know, uh, I, I'm going to do, I'm going to watch it, you know, and do some research. Cause I'm not, 
usually usually you can trust Michael Moore on a lot of different things, uh, but you can also you know trust. Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein, the people he's apparently attacking in this movie. So I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, I'm interested to, to see how this goes. Yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll reserve judgment, but I've just, from what I've heard, it seems like at the very least, um, I, I, I will end up being in disagreement with his takes on, you know, uh, Bill McKibben, for instance, who wrote a really long, uh, article more or less debunking, the parts of the film that talk about him and sort of like, you know, speaking up for himself in face right. of being kind of defamed. Is that a Rolling Stone? Yeah, I believe so. Um, and just yeah. saying like the thing here, here's what the film says about me. Here's the truth of it, or here's how they're, how they're misinterpreting it or whatever maybe. And then even at times saying like, okay, at the time I did believe that, but now I see that I'm wrong, that, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I'll probably I'll probably give that a good read too. Yep. So in addition, film. so we will watch and talk. And I, I think this will be good because it, it we can have a, a sort of uh, discussion on the environmental movement, kind of as is, as it exists currently. Um, you know, just or or you know what we understand of it currently in the whole debate over green energy. Um, yeah, which is. Uh, to me, it doesn't seem like it's much of one, but or it doesn't seem like it's it's a, a substantive debate. But we'll see how I feel after we, after we watch the movie. Cool. All right, so we'll do that. Alrighty.